Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Ada Hetko and Sophia Schulson, two of the Yiddish Book Center's fellows. Ada began her exploration of Yiddish at the Winter Holpon at Yiddish Farm. She studied English literature and book studies at Oberlin College and then served for two years as the Tannenbaum Interreligious Fellow with the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life at Vassar College. She continued with courses at Vassar and is an alumna of the Yiddish Book Center's 2017 Steiner Summer Yiddish Program. Sophia Schulzen graduated from Wesleyan University in 2018 and is an alumna of the Yiddish Book Center's 2017 Steiner Summer Yiddish Program. At Wesleyan, she double majored in German Studies in Wesleyan's Interdisciplinary College of Letters, and she recently completed a senior thesis on the Yiddish folklore of Y.L. Kahan and Shmuel Lemon. Welcome. Thanks for having us, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today to talk about all things Yiddish typewriter related. So I thought for those of our listeners who are not Yiddish Book Center members and therefore did not receive the latest issue of Pockentrager, our English language magazine, let's talk about how we put out the call for Yiddish typewriters, or as I would prefer you would say, Yiddish... Schreibmaschinen, or typewriters. Ah, okay. So tell us a little bit about that call and how that came about, and then we'll take a deep dive into Yiddish typewriters. Absolutely. So it was David's idea, David Mazauer, our bibliographer, to start researching the typewriters and also to put out that call to collect more. We have 27 typewriters right now in our collection. One of those was just recently donated after the call went out. And we've gotten several calls since then from people all over the country wanting to donate they're Yiddish typewriters, so it's very exciting. It is for those of us who are typewriter obsessed, and I put myself in that pool of people. And you spent a lot of time, or at least some time, going uh, around the center, repossessing some of our Yiddish typewriters. We refer to this as the typewriter brigade. Um, you put on the very important overalls that are worn for some of our book rescues and went around and made sure that you found each and every typewriter that had found its way out of the vault. Um, So tell us a little bit about what you found when you went on this mission. I I think one of the most exciting aspects of this project is, is how much we were able to do even before we put out the call for new typewriters because As uh, Ada said, out of the 27 typewriters that we have in our collection right now, only one of them was recently donated. The rest um, have been a part of the Yiddish Book Center's collection for a while, uh, but they were being uh, underutilized, I would say. Uh, And so the first part of this project was going around and figuring out how many typewriters we we already had and uh, cleaning them off a little bit, reorganizing them, bringing them into our vault, uh, and then just finding out as much about them as we possibly could. And I think we were sort of surprised by how much information we could compile about them just from like our own observations. Uh, there are certainly people out there who know more about typewriters than we do, um, but a lot of them have actually already been very helpful in uh, allowing us to learn more about our own collection. So speaking of people who know a lot about and are also enthusiasts of Yiddish typewriters, uh, Nick Block, who's a professor at Northeastern University and has a great blog, 
visited us about two years ago um, to see what we had as he's beginning to explore this topic. So can you talk a little bit about Nick's work and how he's been helpful or how the blog has helped to inform some of your research? So Nick Block's article on his blog about the history of the Yiddish typewriter has been extremely helpful for us. It's mostly focused on the keyboard layout. So he traces very carefully the development of a Hebrew keyboard layout and a Yiddish keyboard layout. And he actually shows that the Yiddish keyboard layout led to the development of the Hebrew layout that's used on modern Hebrew computers today even. So this is a really, really interesting, really important article. And it actually allowed us to look at our own collection and see all of these nuances of what models were um, produced when and what those keyboards looked like and what that means for how people were using them and, um, and how this technology developed. And I know we've had a lot of questions. Um, we posted something on social media following the Pockentrager, and there are questions about what's the difference between a Hebrew and Yiddish? Do you want mine? I think it's Hebrew. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so based on what Nick Block writes, the first things to look for are the double yud and the double vav uh, keys. And those, just right off the bat, indicate that the, that keyboard was designed for typing in Yiddish. And then next, he recommends looking for a Komet's Aleph. And the Komet's Aleph is usually on the upper left-hand side. It might be all the way to the left or somewhere um, a few keys in. And that also indicates that the keyboard was meant for, for typing in Yiddish. So together, those things are the biggest indicators. You can also find uh, a bass and a, and a pay um, on, the, on the keyboard, and that can help identify that it was intended for Yiddish. But there's really a lot of crossover. You could use a Yiddish typewriter to type in Hebrew. You could use a Hebrew typewriter to type in Yiddish. You just have to make some some adjustments and um, and might look a little funny, but um, the standard Yiddish keyboard layout um, is pretty easy to identify. And in gathering up these typewriters, the ones that existed here, uh, as well as putting out the call for new Yiddish type, or not new Yiddish typewriters, but other t typewriters to add to our collection, You've been also doing some work um, researching some of the provenance and those people whose typewriters these were. Can you share one or two, um, each of you, of your favorite stories or most interesting factoids, as we say? Well, our, our most recent acquisition um, is the typewriter of the, the Yiddish writer Bluma Lempel which is a really wonderful donation. And I mean, the, so the case has her name on it, uh, B. Lempel, so it's, it's easy to tell that it was hers. Uh, and I mean, that's particularly appropriate because we had that wonderful article about Bluma Lempel in the most recent uh, issue of Packentrager. Uh, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's, it's cool to look at it and, <laughs> and think about her using it to write her stories. Um, I think we've we've been discussing what makes uh, the typewriter so evocative and so 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 engaging, even just as as someone who's observing it. And um, there's something about I think we decided there's something about the fact that like the mechanisms are visible, you can see exactly how it works, and 
the combination of that and also knowing who's who used it uh, really brings the whole thing to life. Um, and we have some theories about where some of the other ones came from. We're still working on confirming them, but would you like to talk about that, Ada? Sure. So most of the typewriters that we have in our collection, we don't know who they belong to, unfortunately. But we do know a few, including Bluma Lempel's and Aaron Lansky's typewriter. We know where that came from. It's been really wonderful to talk with him about that. He told us the story that he bought it in, the year that he bought it in during graduate school, and how he took it on the train with him and started a conversation with someone on the train just because he was lugging around this, this Yiddish typewriter. And he also told us a little bit about how the typewriter was used here at the Yiddish Book Center in the early years. Someone on the staff stuck a, an Alaska Railroad sticker on it, um, and so that's been part of the machine ever since. And so uncovering the history of these typewriters has also been a process of learning more about the Yiddish Book Center and what goes on here. And as you say, it was really exciting. I was lucky enough to pick up Bluma Lempel's um, typewriter and fetch it back here. Um, and her son surrendered it and, and shared this lovely little story about how he remembered his mother um, typing uh, by a sunny window. And I think we're surrounded by all these books, which makes it really meaningful to imagine that this work was created on these typewriters. Do you sort of fantasize about <laughs> who might have written what on the typewriters? Oh, yeah, all the time, especially since we've been digging through the digital library, looking for references to people talking about typewriters. And they come up very often in memoirs. And so we get to hear about people either having a boarder who typed too loudly in their apartment or rescuing a typewriter from, um, from inspectors in uh, Nazi-occupied territories or requesting typewriters for, um, for schools or organizations. So we get to see a little bit of how typewriters were, um, in Yiddish typewriters and English typewriters used by Yiddish-speaking people were used um, and thought about in their lives. And so every time we find one of these stories, oh, there's also a great one about a typewriter being auctioned in, um, in Montreal, and the, the author is very, um, very frustrated that he doesn't end up actually getting the typewriter in the auction. It's a great, it's very funny. And this is a Yiddish story. This is a Yiddish story, yeah, and he's trying to buy a Yiddish typewriter in, in Montreal. This is great. So, so you're you're digging into the written word um, to find references to this as well. That's great. And we got um, we've gotten several inquiries or people writing to say yes, I have one or I think we have one in our basement or attic. And somebody wrote about their mother, I believe it was, who worked for Crisco and how she worked in the business office and they had a Yiddish typewriter, which is kind of interesting because I think we forget that there was an immigrant population that read and spoke Yiddish, and also there was a bilingual Yiddish cookbook, so that there were applications for this as well in the business world. Are you finding more references for that? I'm not finding as many references to people talking about using their Yiddish typewriters in the business world, but in advertisements for Yiddish typewriters, they're definitely marketing the typewriters for business and home use both. I think there's an extent to which um, it was sort of assumed that typewriters were being used uh, in businesses, at least in, in Yiddish literature, when we're talking about mentions of, of typewriters in Yiddish literature. Um, but 
when typewriters were used in the home, I think it, it, in a way it, it said something, it said a lot about the person um, who owned that typewriter without actually having to describe that person to great length. A lot of the mentions of typewriters in literature are really just, they're one-offs. It's just like you're describing someone's bedroom or someone's home office and you mention that there's a typewriter on a table. And I think that was that was a way of saying something about the person who lived in that room without actually explaining like that they're a writer or that... Um, they are a creator, that they, they do a lot of thinking and, and typing in the room. All you have to do is mention the typewriter and, and immediately you sort of understand what kind of person that was. I'm told that immigrants to the U.S., one of their first purchases was a radio because it kept them connected with Yiddish programming. Do you sense that a typewriter was another coveted item or, or not? My sense is that a typewriter, a Yiddish typewriter, was more of a luxury They'd mostly be owned by people who were a, a writer of some sort, a journalist or a, a literary author. Um, but we also see a number of advertisements for typewriter rentals. So people could rent a typewriter for the day for a few cents, a Hebrew or Yiddish typewriter, and use that. So I think many more people used Yiddish typewriters than owned them. Interesting. And actually, um, one of the typewriters in our collection has a sticker on it that indicates it, it may not have been a rental itself, but it was perhaps purchased from a company that also did rentals, or it was a rented typewriter. And what's the earliest typewriter that we have? 1917. And about when did they start getting manufactured? Do you have a sense? 1903 was, the I think, the first Remington uh, Yiddish typewriter. And of all the famous typewriter companies. Um, which companies that are names like Remington we recognize? Other names? Underwood was also a large producer okay. of Yiddish typewriters. And recently you invited all of the staff at the Yiddish Book Center for this wonderful tour um, because you were able to show off how this collection now has shelves which we're very appreciative of in the vault and it has its own section and you're labeling things as, as curators would do. And you brought us all in and you talked about the, the typewriters that we have in our collection and some of the things that excited you about various and sundry ones. I wonder if you can share a few of your sort of favorite little typewriter anecdotes. I am researching the Hammond Multiplex typewriters right now a little bit. We have two really beautiful trilingual Hammond Multiplexes. Yes, Hebrew uh, vocalized Hebrew, um, Yiddish, and English, and it was designed for using all three languages. You just flip a switch, as the advertisement says, and it goes to the next language. Um, Alyssa found a really awesome advertisement for this exact model. Um, the advertisement is from the early 20s, and it says, a typewriter for Yid. So a typewriter for the Jew. And um, it explains that this is exactly what uh, an American Jew needs, a trilingual typewriter. It doesn't seem like these, uh, this particular model was actually that popular. The company only produced so many. It wasn't like Underwood and, um, and Remington where they were producing many, many of these. But I think it's really poetic. It's kind of beautiful. New immigrants to the U.S., who are in a multilingual world trying to switch between languages all the time, 
could have a machine where they could easily switch from one language to the next. They could use one of those now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I believe uh, a Hammond was the one that we uh, reappropriated from your office, Lisa. Yes. <laughs> I should say, I loved that. It was like a beautiful sculpture. And I, I don't think I gave it up that willingly. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the other thing that was interesting is, if I recall our tour, which um, we all sort of wanted to stay in the vault with you for a while because these were just really compelling stories. And you've done, thank you, great research on them and continue to do it. Um, we're really excited by the work you're doing. Thank you. The, there was one or two stories about how the different carriages um, worked or how the, the keyboards engaged or didn't engage. I'm not using the technical language, but may I ask you to share a little bit about some of those quirky aspects or mechanical brilliance? Well, one of the things that sets the Hammond typewriters apart is the fact that because they are trilingual and because the languages involved are Yiddish and Hebrew and English, the carriage has to be able to move in both directions because uh, English is written from left to right and uh, Yiddish and Hebrew are written from right to left. But then the other part of the Hammond typewriters that sets them apart from the other, uh, the other companies that we have, the Remingtons and the Underwoods and the Royals, uh, is they, rather than using a, a type hammer, which... Um, sort of it hits the ribbon and presses the uh, so there's an individual hammer that's associated with each individual key um, and that flips up when you press the key and it presses into the ribbon with the ink on it and then the, uh, the ribbon presses into the paper. Uh, the Hammonds use a type of technology called the shuttle and anvil and so it's a little bit more like the the old IBMs with the the ball with all of the the letters printed around the outside so it's it's like a, a cylindrical uh, mechanism inside and uh, around the rim uh, are all of the different letters and then you can have basically different letters at sort of different levels on the cylinder and so in order to change languages rather than attach a whole new set of hammers you just move the cylinder up and down so that um, a different set of letters is aligned with the ribbon that presses the ink onto the page and so that technology was helpful for uh, monolingual typewriters because it allowed you to change fonts and to change the size of the letters but for the purposes of a uh, multilingual typewriter it was great because it meant that you could you, you could have completely different languages on the anvil. I'm reminded that you as fellows at the Yiddish Book Center bring so much to the work that you do um, and also to your understanding of Yiddish language and culture and everything else. Is there any um, any one typewriter that you're particularly interested in having somebody say, oh, I have one that we would be happy to share? That's a very good question. I've seen a lot of advertisements for Oliver uh, typewriters, um, and we don't have one of those. And then also Hermes. Uh, I believe that Hermes, which was a relatively common uh, typewriter brand, they made Yiddish typewriters as well, and we don't have any of those. I think the, the typewriter in one of the, one of the stories that we've found in the digital collection is about a Hermes typewriter, and, we don't, and it specifically calls it a Hermes typewriter, and we don't have one of those yet. We're also really interested in the Blickensterfer Oriental which we have pictures of and an advertisement for, but we haven't seen an actual model of. Great. So um, for our listeners, please spread the word. We're looking for these Yiddish typewriters. And if you have one or have questions, please write to us at p 
T at YiddishBookCenter.org. And for those of you who would like to come to the center, um, we are now delighted to say that we have included the typewriter collection and our public tours. We offer public tours Tuesdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at 11 and 1. And Ada and Sophia have put together a special um, addition to the public tour, which includes a visit to see the typewriters and learn more about them. And again, thank you both. It's really exciting to see what you've done. And I know you're continuing to learn more um, and, and to provide us with both information and more typewriters in our collection. So before we go, is there anything else that you've found or have want to share that's kind of curious and fun? When we were preparing to go around and collect all of the typewriters that had migrated to various parts of uh, the building, uh, we wanted to be as dramatic and over the top about it as possible. And so in addition to wearing the jumpsuits, we wanted to play some music. And one of the songs that we found when we were getting ready to go do that is this wonderful little composition by Leroy Anderson called The Typewriter, which is a piece of classical music that uses a typewriter as uh, a percussion instrument. And it actually also appears briefly in uh, season one, episode four of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It all comes back to Yiddish. It all comes back to Yiddish. Okay. Um, and I can just play the very beginning of it. So let's go out with this wonderful little song. Thanks for listening. Tune in again. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a podcast of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm Andrea Moore, a Yiddish language intern for the Wexler Oral History Project at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to episode 98, Kitchen Kibbutz, the Pop-Up Jewish Diner Club, where Jeff Gable, the founder of Kitchen Kibbutz, is interviewed about this project of exploring modern takes on Jewish cuisine. Zeitmir Stark und Gesund, be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.